Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the new folk horror movie Midsommar, written and directed by Ari Aster, the filmmaker behind Hereditary. Florence Pugh stars as a young woman who's traumatised by a family tragedy and then goes on holiday to Sweden with her mediocre boyfriend and his friends. Visiting a cult-like rural community, they join the celebrations for a bizarre festival that only happens every 90 years. So this movie's getting very mixed responses from audiences and critics. So appropriately enough, we have a very mixed podcast for you. <laughs> I personally loved this movie. My friends and I all went to see this last night, so it's quite fresh in my mind. We enjoyed it so much. I found it very funny in an intentional way. It was different to Hereditary while still kind of sharing some of its sensibilities, and it just made me more kind of excited about Ari Aster as a filmmaker than I was before. There was like one element I didn't like, but we'll discuss that later. Whereas Morgan really disliked it. And we just before we started recording, we were kind of talking about how not only are we both very set in our opinions here and haven't changed them overnight, but also we kind of both think that like when you watch a movie with friends, you tend to like agree with your friends. So I've been having conversations about how great it was. And Morgan's been having conversations with the guy that she saw this movie with about how much they hated it. So (laughs) we're ready to go. (laughs) Yes, indeed we are. Yeah. I was immensely frustrated by this film. I think it has many positive elements and I started out really enjoying it. And then as it continued, I grew more and more frustrated until by the end, it had completely, completely lost me. Would you compare it to Us in that regard, Jordan Peele's movie? Yes, I think that there is stuff to compare it to there. Although I think the stuff that is good in this is better than the stuff that works in Us. Like nothing in Us, I thought was so great. Although I did enjoy it fine at the beginning like people were so crazy for that Lupita Nyong'o performance and I didn't think she was bad or anything in the movie at all but I because I just didn't think the script was good enough to really give her that room whereas like the first half an hour or so of this movie and particularly the sort of prologue-ish part of the film before they get to Sweden I was really really gripped by it and I think that the visuals and the music are really fantastic we'll talk about that stuff more in detail as we go along Clearly, Ari Aster is a director who is incredibly talented. We both loved Hereditary, which we talked about last year. You more than me, I think. But I had a great time watching that film. But I just thought the script for this movie was an absolute mess. And so as it continued and sort of plotted along and kind of fell apart, in my view, the stuff that was good about it, it wasn't like the acting got worse or the visuals got worse but that stuff wasn't enough when the script wasn't working it felt to me by the end like it was a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing and so I couldn't really then value the elements that I had felt were positive at the beginning with with the sort of a couple minor exceptions of things that we will talk about later it wasn't that I found this movie like wildly offensive or anything it was just by the end I was like what is the point of any of this nonsense (laughs) like like, you know But you liked it a lot, so why don't you start us off? (laughs) So like I said, I was surprised by how funny this film is. It's hilarious, like right from the beginning, as well as being really upsetting. Like obviously, uh, I think Morgan's just kind of looking at me like, what? (laughs) I just strongly disagree. I just found it very, very funny, especially there were a lot of kind of just absurdish punchlines, like visual punchlines in the movie, but also the group of male friends 
who go on the holiday are just so entertaining and have such interesting little roles. So basically, the central relationship of the movie is between Florence Pugh's um, character, Danny, and her boyfriend, Christian. So she is like completely distraught for the vast majority of this movie. She is just in a really deep depression. She's wearing like the quintessential depression outfit for most of the film, like these really kind of saggy colorless clothes. And it's just like really upset and also is kind of relying on her boyfriend for emotional support. But they set up really early on that he isn't particularly into this relationship. And like, she's feeling really bad about having to lean on him too much. And it's just this very kind of well-observed millennial relationship that's kind of shitty, but not like awful. And it's portrayed in a way that is just sort of like morbidly hilarious because it's so terrible. Um, And I feel like a lot of people have been talking about this movie like, oh, go watch this movie with your boyfriend kind of thing. Because it's just like, he is such a specific type. He has three friends. So there is um, Josh, who's played by Chidi from The Good Place. And or then, William Jackson Harper, as he yes. is actually known <laughs> Or William in real Jackson life. Harper, yes. a man who does have a real name, and he's wonderful in this, as he is in The Good Place. And Will Poulter is playing his friend Mark, who's this sort of, basically he's like a horny douchebag guy. And then their mutual friend, um, Pele, who's Swedish and comes from this community and basically invites them all to join him at this really Im- impressive, like, ritualized festival. And kind of Christian and Josh, who's uh, William Jackson Harper's character, are both anthropologists who are interested in kind of studying this community, but Josh is much more academic and serious about it, whereas Christian's kind of lackadaisical and is just looking for direction and accidentally shows up at this place and is like, oh, cool, I guess I should study this then. So there's sort of like an academic aspect to that too. But just all the interactions between those characters are just... They're just very funny because they're all sort of self-absorbed in their own ways. And then you introduce this sort of very hippie-ish Swedish guy who's bringing them into this commune and there's just all this interpersonal toxicity and they're also kind of caught up in that that they're missing all of the like blatant horror movie signals that you always get in the first act of these films like if you show up to like a secluded farm that's full of white people in like ritual costumes that they're all like singing and playing flutes turn the car right back around and leave (laughs) but they do not because it's a horror movie But yeah, I I really, I think some of the funniest parts were definitely the parts between all of those men and then just sort of the points where people are trying to interact with just these very weird rituals where you just have the inherent comedy of someone being put in this really bizarre situation and then just trying to muddle through and like simultaneously being gaslit about bad stuff that's clearly happening around them. But also you're like too socially embarrassed to object when something really weird is happening nearby, nearby. So everyone's just sort of going along with it. And this was just like a really well-executed version of that trope, I think. I think that there are definitely funny moments in the film and sort of jokes that work. Like, I laughed at some stuff. I strongly disagree that the tone overall is supposed to be funny and that the situations that they find themselves in are supposed to be comical. I I looked it up afterwards and Ari Aster says, I hope everyone will be laughing at the end of the film. Well... He and I are simpatico. <laughs> the audience I saw it with did not laugh very much at all. And I, if that was his intention, as it apparently was, I think he failed because the I've tone seen, of the movie... I feel like a couple of critics described it as a comedy. Like, I think maybe David Ehrlich described it as a comedy. I mean, the music to me, which I thought was beautiful, felt so portentous and gave the movie such a feeling of portentousness. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's really ominous. That... 
it felt like everything was being taken seriously to a degree that it became boring to me. Like all the endless rituals that mean nothing in the context of the film, I did not find any of that funny. And if you were supposed to find it funny, then, I mean, it's great that you did, but I do not (laughs) think that the movie successfully conveyed that like if you're if you have all that kind of like really intense music unless you're setting it off in a very deliberate way visually which i don't think this movie did i don't think you can expect the audience to be like oh ha ha i mean a lot of it is like catharsis laughter but i mean i'm it wasn't just like my screening that was laughing at this this is definitely like a common response people have had to the film so clearly (laughs) it depends on how the room goes (laughs) I mean, clearly people are responding that way. I cannot even begin to fathom (laughs) how you would respond (laughs) like that. It's not that there weren't individually funny moments. And there's an orgy kind of thing at the end where certainly people were laughing in my theater. But for me, the the problem is the script. And so... Okay, so I'm interested to hear about this because I don't really even know what the problem could be. (laughs) Well... The setup at the beginning, like it's impossible to talk about this movie without spoiling it. So, oh yeah, spoil it. it. Is that Danny has this bipolar sister who she's worried about, and then the sister um, kills herself and both of her parents, which I did not love. But that is the setup of the movie, and so she's in this state of extreme grief. You see a couple scenes with her and the boyfriend, which I think are very well written, and you get the idea of them as a couple, which is this sort of unpleasant, shitty relationship. And then they all wind up on this trip to Sweden. It was supposed to be initially just the guys, but she winds up going because he hadn't told her about it, which obviously is not good. And then she's upset and he asks her to come just to basically save his own skin. I mean, they should have broken up long ago, basically. It's like an inertia relationship where they don't actually like each other. So then once they get to Sweden, you have all of this stuff with the cults where... It felt, (laughs) my friend and I last night were like, Harry Astor just joined his own cult. (laughs) And that was totally what the movie felt like to me. I did not think that the rules were established in a way that made anything that was happening meaningful or coherent. So you have long, long, long rituals where the meaning either never quite makes sense or you only find out after the fact in a way that I did not find dramatically satisfying. I'm sure that there are references to real things in sort of Scandinavian culture, but I don't know any of that stuff. And it's not that I want everything spelled out for me, like in black and white, but if I have no grasp of any of this and none of it it makes any sense to me and is boring, then I feel like the film needs to do a little bit more there. And the cult is full of all these people, most of whom have no personality characteristics. So they're just kind of wandering around. So it felt like the movie was just sort of sagging dramatically. Like I was not very interested in much of what was happening. And the primary issue is just that the characters psychologically, to me, just the concentration of the characters at the beginning of the movie where I felt like I understood them and they were really making sense and were compelling. And both Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner, who plays the boyfriend, are really great actors. And so they play these scenes at the beginning together in a way where you really are like, oh, God. As it goes along, their character motivations become either kind of incoherent and 
just sort of inexplicable or simplified to the point where it's sort of nonsense. All the academic stuff is like on a level of like the scientists in Prometheus. <laughs> like the, 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 this film does not understand academia at all. I'm not expecting it to be like an incisive parody of PhD students, but like all the anthropology stuff is just preposterous. She's supposed to be doing a psychology PhD, clearly just because she needs to be doing something different than the guys. They mention it once and then she displays no characteristics of this at all. There's a very compelling scene where they show that um, the sort of ritual when the people in the cult reach the age of 72 is that they kill themselves because they've reached like the end of their life cycle. And it's really, really horrible. And you would think that this would be connected to her to the deaths at the beginning of the movie and they show a couple sort of cuts to that and she's upset but then she is sort of persuaded to stay and then doesn't really turn into anything and one of the there's another young woman there who does is like i'm getting the fuck out of here and she's like oh why are you leaving it's like um because you just saw two people jump off a cliff and have their bodies splattered everywhere like hello and in horror movies, people always stay longer than they should, right? Like, you're not expecting a total realism. But because the movie is trying to operate on a level that is more realistic than a sort of traditional slasher movie, things just didn't make sense to me at a certain point. And as the movie goes on, she just, she never makes any active choices. She just kind of goes along. She and the boyfriend barely interact in the second half of the movie. The Swedish guy who's led them into the cult, who is very creepy and I think the performance is good, basically doesn't appear in the second half of the movie. The end is based, they're just like, oh yeah, we kill nine people every 90 years because that's just what we do. You've never heard about that before. A couple of the people who die are people we have no connection to at all. And so the, a, couple of, <laughs> a couple of the other characters who get murdered, they just kind of disappear and nothing is ever said about where they've gone. It felt like a ton of it had been cut out, like stuff had been cut because the movie was too long. It was too long anyway. And so there were all of these threads that were kind of just scattered around and didn't tie together. And I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more if it had been more of a just like traditional horror movie because it didn't feel suspenseful to me. I wasn't particularly scared except for the moments of gore. And it felt like they were different characters in the first and second half because in the first half I was like, oh wow, yeah, this is like these, these men suck, like ugh. And then in the second half it was just like ritual after ritual and I was like, I care about none of this. What the fuck is the point of this movie? Make it end. This is too long. And by the end I was like, well, this was dumb. So that was my problem with the Well, you know I film. am the world's biggest hater of overlong films. I did not find this film overlong. I was like, yeah, perfect length. I enjoyed every minute. <laughs> and I also didn't have um, didn't have any issues with the rituals either. Like, um, yeah, I felt like they had like the perfect amount of suspense. I don't feel like this was, unlike Hereditary, this wasn't a traditional horror movie where they were trying to be really scary all the time. Like, even in kind of the promotional interviews, which I've read a couple of today after watching the movie, they're kind of explicitly discussing it in a sort of, this isn't meant to be sort of a horror, a scary horror movie. It's meant to be, there's like occasional moments of gore and it's definitely very tense, but it's also kind of a fairy tale story as well as being sort of like an inter interpersonal drama thing with all of this, you know, ritualistic falderall over the top, which does kind of fit with 
folk horror movies in general, which are often kind of this combination of fantasy and horror where there are some elements where it's like there'll be some kind of scary ritual but most of it will be sort of almost this sort of anthropological thing yeah i just realized we didn't do like an intro to folk horror so basically it's like the wicker man is like the quintessential folk horror movie but like hereditary there's actually very little like horror movie content either right like most of the sort of classic horror movie stuff in this sort of tropey genre way is in the last 15 minutes of the movie. Yeah. But like tonally, it's like, an, that is like a very tense film. Like that film is like, you're on the edge of your seat emotionally for the whole movie. Right. Whereas this is kind of, it's not aiming for that same kind of tone, but in a way that still like worked for me. Cause I feel like the thing you were describing with there being a lot of loose ends is kind of how I felt about us. Whereas with this, even though they didn't introduce some of the final elements earlier on in the film, there was so much foreshadowing all the way through that it didn't feel like they'd done a sort of surprise ending or that there wasn't enough feeding into it beforehand. Like, I definitely felt like it all kind of held together really naturally in the final act. Well, one of the things we were talking about last night that was really aggravating was the thing with the the people dying at 72 or killing themselves at 72, because that's like the end of the life cycle. Felt like a very sort of like culty thing, right? Where like, oh, yes, sure. this is a thing that, peop- that I could see people doing that the outsiders would be really horrified by. Like, sure. I found that se- that sequence is the most gory thing in the movie. and It's super it's, disturbing. It's very disturbing. I found it very, very upsetting to watch. And I thought it was really well done. And that all kind of made sense to me. I didn't think anyone's reaction to it beyond the immediate scene made any sense. But like, I found that as a scene and as a concept good. I mean, I think they set out the reason why the others don't leave really well because it's like there's all the other characters. You've got you've got the two anthropo- anthropologist characters. So there's like Christian, the boyfriend, who in the end is like so self-absorbed that he just wants to stick around. He wants to have like an interview subject. Josh is like keen to be a professional anthropologist in this movie's like view of what that means. So he's also sticking around being like, oh, I guess it's cultural then. And Mark, the douchebag character, missed all of this. So he doesn't have like the visceral reason to leave. And also he is like the most callous of all of them. Danny's problem throughout the film is that she's so depressed and unable to like do anything independently that she just sticks around even though she's having the worst time of all of them. I mean, I think this is the problem with her character, right? Is that, well... I don't understand if the movie is supposed to be about a breakup, which all the interviews have said that it's like a breakup movie. I fully do not understand why even bother with the stuff about the suicide and the murder at the beginning, because it introduces this huge problem in the movie, which is that I do not think that they do a effective job of dramatizing that basically incomprehensible trauma in the film. Florence Pugh is an amazing actress and you can tell that she's in this incredible state of distress the whole time. But the way she behaves is basically just like she's really depressed and doesn't do anything and just goes along, which to me is not very interesting dramatically. And I can't, I have no idea how I would respond to that kind of thing happening because it is kind of unimaginable. But I felt like Hereditary was a much better executed version of like some really horrible thing happening to you and you had this bad stuff in your past and Tony Collette in that film feels so specific and the writing is really specific. And in this, Florence Pugh, like it felt to me like it was sort of starting out as this sort of feministy movie where she's got this shitty boyfriend, all the other men are also kind of shitty and she's, you know, 
like something's going to happen with her. And then ultimately the boyfriend does wind up dying, but like she just kind of is carried along by stuff happening in a way that felt very unsatisfying to me. I mean, I think it's definitely like a very clear depiction of the type of mental state that you are in when you are vulnerable to being recruited into a cult, right? Because it's pretty clear from the beginning like that um, Pele, the Swedish friend, has spotted her and chosen her to be brought into the village, right? Like, obviously he's brought the friends, but like he seems to be targeting in her in some way. He kind of has a crush on her maybe. And then towards the end, once she's kind of becomes the May Queen as part of this sort of May dance competition thing, which is like inspired by a real Swedish dance, probably they fixed it so she would become the May Queen and she'd be forced to join this community. But like the final shot is kind of the catharsis of her kind of finally... I guess, moving on from her trauma and finding happiness. And I feel like the latter half of the film, like the first half is obviously this like really straightforward and like very well-observed relationship drama. And then this towards the end of the film, the movie is sort of accepting the social mores of the Harga communities. She finally finds happiness in her new home. And it's like buying into the idea of Pele being this sort of like prince who's rescued her from her shitty life and all of the characters who are dying in the final act are getting punished based on the morals of the community rather than the morals of the audience. But they have the one scene where he sort of convinces her to stay after the suicides of the older people, which I think is a really good scene. He is very creepy in it. He's manipulating her. And then the two of them do not have a scene together again in the movie. So she's just dancing and then she's at a dinner and then she's going around. Like she doesn't have, like there's no drama. It's just stuff happening. So clearly they are trying to recruit her, but they're not, there was nothing for me in the movie that was like, oh, this is what's happening to her psychologically. It was just stuff. And I did not find that interesting at all. And as an allegory for a breakup, which it apparently is, I also did not find that. I did not think it was effective. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I can understand like the creative background of this film being written after Ari Aster had gone through a big breakup and he was like, clearly he's not trying to make the film about him and his girlfriend because like, there's a female protagonist, like a very different like dynamic, but it kind of felt like him, it's like his artistic catharsis getting over this relationship. But like, I also don't really feel like this film felt like a breakup movie. I mean, no. Maybe that's like the origins of it, but that isn't how it comes across. Also, I think part of the issue is that the boyfriend does seem really shitty at the beginning, but then kind of as it goes along, because the characters, to me, feel like they kind of just aren't really people anymore. I wound up feeling very sympathetic to him in the latter part of the movie because he's in this group of like, weirdo people he gets drugged he's sort of dragged into this situation where he's having sex with this person and he's just like what the fuck is going on and i think in order for it to feel satisfying that he gets killed at the end you have to continuously through the movie be like what a fucking asshole like this shitty man he deserves to die and even when he's being crappy at the beginning he's not so awful that you're just like jump off a cliff I think it's like intentionally designed to have really different responses, right? Because like one of the things people have been talking about a lot with this film is like a lot of men are like horrified by the way the poor boyfriend's been treated and the women are all like, oh, burn him at the stake. But I'm a woman and I didn't feel that way. <laughs> like- I think it's, it's meant to be ambiguous, right? Because like I definitely think he is shitty and he's shitty throughout. But by the end of it, it's like, 
I mean, I guess kind of slightly through horror movie rules, you're like, oh, punish him. But also it's like, he hasn't, he doesn't like deserve the death penalty, right? He's like a garden variety fuckboy, right? And I think that is more interesting depiction than having like a really kind of corny classic horror movie thing where some guy is like a full-on psycho and it's like let's get get rid of like the abusive boyfriend but also like the end where they just are like well also we kill nine people every 90 years because it's what we do the only reason that's in there is because he has to die right sure <laughs> but like that's so na- that's so lazy that is such lazy writing and i don't like you know fuck that like that's just really frustrating to me you see i feel like intellectually i understand your complaints <laughs> But emotionally and spiritually, I still really like vibing with this movie. So, <laughs> I also think like I recently saw the souvenir by Joanna Hogg, which still has no UK release date because yeah, why? I really want to see that film, and that is obviously genre wise completely different from this yeah, movie. It's a, drama. it's a little indie drama, but it is also about like a young woman with a really shitty boyfriend, and it is that's a horror movie, man. Like, let me tell you, that is just. Like, you're watching that and you're like, oh my god, oh my god. Like, just, I wanted to strangle him the whole time. I just wanted to slap him. He was so awful. And then also, like, by the end, he's kind of humanized. and It's not like you're literally just like, this man is a monster. But I kind of started thinking about that movie halfway through-ish this, which is when I it really started to lose me. Because I was like, you know, if you want the movie to kind of be about these interpersonal relationships, you can't just drop them halfway through, right? Like, if it's meant to be allegorical of something, you have to keep that up, which Hereditary does really effectively. Like, it keeps pushing the family stuff throughout, and then right at the end, you get the sort of horror movie stuff. And the end of Hereditary, of course, if people have seen it, all of a sudden, it's like, and this is all a cult to the demon payment, blah, 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 which I think is really quite stupid. I love that movie. I loved it. (laughs) Right. I love that movie. So I was like, whatever. But in retrospect, I really am like, yeah, that was pretty dumb. And it felt to me with this, like he had sort of taken the stuff from that, that I thought didn't work particularly and blown it up. So like, he's gone so far into the mysticism stuff in a way that I just did find particularly engaging. And sacrifice the human part in favor of being like let's show another ritual it's like oh god (laughs) i don't care your reaction here sounds like it sounds like my reaction to a film i saw this year a horror festival which was like another film that was like really heavily leaning on ritual so it was this film called the black circle it had this same idea of scandinavian supernatural stuff and like the initial thing was like, if you do this like ritualistic magic, then you'll get all these powers. But every time you do this magic thing, a sort of ghost of yourself starts following you around, which is like a fucking terrifying concept. And it's like, eventually this ghost will like take over your life. So the initial first third of that movie was like incredible. And then I swear to God, the second two thirds of that movie were all just a real time exorcism ritual to get rid of the ghost. <laughs> and by the end of it, I was like, I was ready to like fucking murder them. Cause I was like, did you make this movie as a trick to teach me the ritual? Cause you think this is real? <laughs> Whereas with this, I was just like really enjoying it because I felt like there was enough humour, which clearly did not work for Morgan in the slightest, but I felt like there was enough humour and like I really liked the performances and I was just so into all of the production design that it was just like fully immersed all the way through. I feel like this is the difference between us is that you can be like, the production design was so amazing and I'll be like, the story made a fucking sense. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Because really, I mean, I do think the production design was great. I think 
I mean, you can talk more about the music in a second, but I, th- I, I would listen to the soundtrack for this ad nauseum, even though I didn't like the movie. I thought the soundtrack was amazing. I thought the soundtrack was so good that it was imbuing scenes that really meant nothing with like great, you know, weight. And I was like, even as while I was watching, it, I was like, this feels like it's, you know, powerful. I but think it's I not. think he deserves that Oscar nomination. Does A twenty four have the money? I doubt it. Who knows? <laughs> but I just like that is never going to be enough for me if the script is not there. I cannot get engaged by something. If, I mean, not like the script always has to be the best script ever. Like I just recently saw an indie, um, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I loved. And the script was the weakest part of it, probably. I don't think it was a bad script. I just think it was definitely like the direction and acting and music were definitely stronger. But in this case where I feel like the script is like this inept, I just can't. I, I can't do it. I get so frustrated as a writer. I'm just like, oh. Oh, why are you doing this? Like, stop. And have this reaction then yes. to a film. <laughs> but why don't you talk about the music? Because you know more. I will. Actually, before we go on to the music and production design, which I, I really found super interesting, I just remembered that I should say the one thing which I didn't really like about this movie, um, which was it, it, this was kind of featured in the trailer and kind of made me slightly nervous but actually it was like a surprisingly really minor element of the movie to the extent that makes me wonder if it was one of the things that clearly got cut um but like in the town there is this one disabled character who's like the village oracle and kind of he paints stuff that they then interpret into like their scripture and this is a person who is depicted physically as having elephantitis or whatever that thing is called where you've got like severe like disfigurations on your face but they're also clearly depicted as having some kind of mental disability of some kind, like developmentally disabled. And they kind of reveal halfway through the movie that this person is like the result of intentional incest. And they like produce children like this to become the Oracle. And I was just like, no element of this is necessary. And also you have put several things together here (laughs) that are not accurate and feel. And also in the UK, there is now a law where if you portray negatively people with facial disfigurements, you do not get government funding, which I think is a very interesting and positive development in the film industry. And that particular element of this film did not approve. I agree. This was also like, so they tell one of the anthropology students, no, we respect the incest taboo. And then the other one, they're like, yes, we do it deliberate incest to like produce these children this was the one element of the movie i found offensive i really did not like it the bipolar thing also was kind of like sure and it was also narratively like there's no other reference to incest in the whole movie it's there aren't even any like sibling there's one sibling pair but they're not i mean that's something i'll talk about in the productive design thing because i think that kind of ties into the film's like very clear sort of white supremacist aryan kind of themes right but it seems like they must have cut something because it was like, what is going on? Like, yeah. what the fuck? And I think he explicitly said in interviews that like that character is just meant to be a symbol and not a person. And I was like, yeah, Great. it's bad, bad. Didn't see that. But like, I don't think it's good. I don't think you should have that in your movies. Nope. I don't think you should have that in your fucking horror movies. No. Nope. Um, so, <laughs> however, <laughs> the music. So yeah, if you heard last week's podcast on Carol, kind of in our tag at the end, I was like talking about how excited I was specifically for the music in this movie, um, which is by an artist. Their name is the Haxan Cloak, but it's a guy named Bobby Krilk, I think is how it's pronounced. I have no idea. But the Haxan Cloak um, is known for doing this absolutely terrifying music. 
Um, he has an album which is just sort of about like death and decay in a thematic sense. It's not got lyrics. It's um sound effects kind of. It sounds a bit like being in a haunted house. There's a lot of drones. It's very immersive and frightening and dark. I love it. Um, I have it on my phone to listen to when I want to be scared. And um, Ari Aster wrote the screenplay to this movie while listening to that music and then hired the Hacks and Cloak to do the soundtrack. He has like scored a movie before. He collaborated with Atticus Ross on some other film. This movie, obviously I had really high expectations first because he's great and also because in Hereditary that also had like a really unusual score. Like that was by a saxophonist called Colin Stetson who does like really weird shit. But not only was the music in this great, it was also not remotely what I was expecting from the Hacks and Cloak because I was expecting... I mean, not like traditional horror movie music, but like the scary music we know him for. Whereas actually it was like this very well-researched kind of mostly folk music, much of which was performed live on screen, either by singers or people playing the flute in the field and stuff. But also there was the more traditional orchestral score. So like it goes through several different historical eras. It's clearly very well-researched. There were some elements that I picked up on and some elements, obviously, because I don't know about Scandinavian music. I found out about later after looking up a couple of interviews with him, but like he's collaborated with Bjork so he called up Bjork for some research he did a bunch of ethnographic musical research to get the right kind of situation going on with the vocals and so on but um the part that I personally understood the best was like at the end there's this very long piece of classical music as opposed to the traditional folk music you see in the film elsewhere and um it's sort of just orchestral it's very pastoral and it really fits with sort of the final sequence which is this long May Queen ritual and I was like this is Nazi music. (laughs) It is full on this period of of like European music where it kind of tied into the folk movement, which is very much what this movie is about. They kind of talk about all of these rituals being ancient, but I think it's very intentionally tying into like the concept of neo-paganism in Northern Europe, which is almost entirely kind of fabricated in the late 19th, early 20th century. All the stuff we think of today as the quote unquote meaning of runes, the runic alphabet was mostly an alphabet. A lot of the stuff we see nowadays is meanings that were invented by modern occult people, many of which had ties with the Nazis. I definitely do not want to say that like all neo-pagans are Nazis because that's definitely not the case, but it's certainly like a strand of this historical period. And I think it's not a coincidence that the last ritual was 90 years ago, 1929. That is like the peak of when there were all these people in like Scandinavia and Germany and Austria who were like, wouldn't it be great if we all really got close to the earth? And by that, I mean, everyone has blonde children in the countryside while doing farm work and listening to classical music and folk music. And like during the rise of fascism in Germany, classical music was like a big part of that propaganda campaign, right? It was like anything that was remotely jazz-based, which was all of the music in kind of 1920s Berlin, like we've all seen Cabaret, get rid of that. They didn't want black music, they didn't want Jewish music, they did not want gay music, they wanted music that was kind of all about the motherland and was very patriotic and very tonal and not experimental. So there were certain composers who were very well-respected by Hitler and kind of the various music propagandists, including Sibelius, who's Finnish, um, and Bruckner. And I really felt like listening to that final piece of music was very much like listening to that pastoral classic music, which is like beautiful, right? Like I love a lot of these composers, 
but at the time <laughs> that was like some grim stuff like there was a dark background and that is very much like in keeping with the way this whole movie is all like oh sunshine and blonde people running around in the sunlight and having organic food you're all gonna have your like Aryan children and there's so much subtext going on there which was definitely present but subtle enough that it didn't feel like they were making a movie where it was like check out the Nazis which is definitely like kind of an overdone topic at this point but one of the things I was thinking about after the film was over was the fact that they specifically selected Christian Danny's boyfriend as like the guy they needed to impregnate this girl and it was like okay you've picked like this shit guy but they've just picked him because he's like a tall, well-built white man. Because you had several other options there. There's an implication that maybe Mark had also been used to impregnate someone, but we don't see his death, so we don't know about that. People of colour get killed off, and it's like also they're like the people who doubt things first. The academic character, uh, Josh, they like cough his leg and put like the rune for knowledge on it and like plant it in a field. It's like very fucked up stuff. And I, just to make it clear, this is not like a racist film. It's more like the film is intentionally kind of sowing seeds of this community being a potentially white supremacist community, tying into all of the modern paganist stuff, which is, you know, drawing from those sources in the early 20th century. And another element, which I obviously would never have picked up on because it's like subtext, is that... Um, the production designer, who is clearly a fucking genius, he chose the colours, the yellow and blue, to come out throughout the film. So there was this big yellow, like, triangular house and stuff. And it's intentionally he chose the colours of the Swedish flag because he wanted to be like, hey, check out all this nationalism. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot going on there. And obviously all of... There's lots of murals in this film which are very kind of present throughout the trailers and the promotional stuff as well, which are kind of inspired by local Swedish murals. All of that is very interesting, and I think would have been more interesting if it had been slightly more textual. Yeah. Apparently there was a scene cut where, like, Josh is reading this book that's about, like, how runes are for Nazis, and there was, like, a little joke where Pele's like, oh yeah, he likes to read it in front of me because he knows my community likes to read runes, just to lampshade that, and then they sort of uh, cut that one out. Should have kept that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if it's beyond just the general, like, bringing up that subtext a little bit, because I had no idea about any of this, and I do think it's interesting, and most people are not going to pick up on this at all. And I don't think that movies need to, again, be, like, explained explicitly for all the viewers, but you have to have a reasonable expectation of what people are going to know. I think that a movie that had done a little bit more with that, just, like, in terms of what the movie actually, what actually happens in the film, would have been more interesting to me than this because it is so sort of under the surface to a degree that it's not I just think if the movie had done anything more intentionally <laughs> than this which doesn't do I mean we watched out of the movie and we were like what was that about like there, there was just that wasn't about anything and this would have been something where it had you know this or a more coherent breakup allegory or whatever I think would have been more satisfying yeah. I mean, I've definitely noticed, you know, when there's a film like this, which has like a lot of very intentional symbolist imagery in it, you know, um, which was also the case with us, there's always going to be like a ton of sort of, oh, the little clues you missed explained articles online, right? And like today I was kind of talking about this uh, with a couple of co-workers and one of them linked me to, it was like a blog post that was sort of translating the meaning behind all of the runes that you see in the background of the film. All of the runes are like real. There's kind of a combination of fictional meanings that they thought of for the culture and like real ones that are used in neo-paganism. It was really kind of illustrating the difference between, I think, my attitude towards that kind of thing and 
what I generally see is the attitude towards it on places like Reddit and YouTube, where there's like a real desire to translate meaning. And it's like, yes, there is a lot of coded messages in the background of this film and very explicitly uncoded messages, like the fact they fucking show people like a giant bear several times to be like, guess what? Someone's going to get fucking murdered with a bear. It's intentionally foreshadowing. But like, I don't feel like this film is trying to say, why don't you translate the runes? I think that's set dressing. And I also think the more important thing to take from this is the fact that all of that rune stuff is not ancient. Like it's definitely a kind of more modern creation, which people have twisted something that they like the idea of it being their heritage into something that fits in with their modern and monstrous worldview, which is like a deeper idea this kind of plays into. Right. The question would be how much he wants that to be the meaning of the movie, which I don't have the answer to, obviously. No. Because I would never have known any of that if you hadn't told me, and I'm a pretty educated person. So I don't have to know everything or get everything in a movie. That's I don't know everything at all in the world. Like I'm very ignorant about many things. But if that's just like a little a little thing he's putting under the surface as like a sort of potpourri that's yeah. tied into bigger that's tied into the bigger ideas of the movie, sure, right? But if that's supposed to be like a big part of the meaning of the movie, then I think there's a problem there because most people seeing this are not going to have any concept of any of that. Yeah, I mean, the way I was viewing it was like, obviously part of the reason I like this is because it was like tying in with so many things that I clearly have a personal interest in. But also watching this with all of my friends, we were all enjoying it kind of in the same tone and afterwards we were like talking about other elements and we all enjoyed similar things or we all were really getting into the film for different reasons. And none of them knew anything or cared about, you know, the racist history of rune translation, you know? So I was still trying to like, for me, the movie meant nothing. So in attempting to figure out what it's about, yes, the movie can be enjoyable without having a deep meaning, but this movie clearly thinks it has a deep meaning. So then what is that deep meaning if it's tied to one of various things that articles are being written about in terms of like the subtext or whatever? My point is just that if you're sort of supposed to be drawing the meaning from things like this, then I think there's an issue. But I had a lot of issues with the movie. So as as previously maybe if you had a background in runology (laughs) maybe if you'd sat down and read some of the 19th century german weirdo guido von list and his crackpot theories (laughs) oh Oh, actually before we sign off i would like to name drop someone else so i think listeners would be interested in googling if you liked production design in this film there's various explainers about the local swedish folk art which I obviously knew nothing about but also um, Helma af Klimt is like a big influence on this uh, like a symbolic abstract artist from Sweden these really bright colours and like kind of big shapes and a lot of it was to do with like the spiritual visions that she would have they're amazing as soon as you see them you'll be like holy shit why is this person not more famous and you know we all know why but um, yeah Helma af Klimt she had a huge, huge retrospective at the Guggenheim Museum in New York last year that I sadly did not get to, but it was definitely a, like more attention being paid to this person who previously has not had attention paid to her because it was a really big deal. So that was cool. But yeah, her stuff is her stuff is great. What are we doing next week? Oh my God, what are we doing next week? There's nothing on the calendar. <laughs> so we will be discussing something as yet to be determined. We don't know. We also will be starting our North and South Book Club 
uh, next week, I believe, with a Patreon blog post. Oh my post. gosh, gotta read a book. I have not got my book yet. I should go to the library. Yes, you should do that. North and South is available in many editions in book form. It is also on, on Project Gutenberg. So if you want to download it there, it is available by Elizabeth Gaskell, classic 19th century romance that's also about the Industrial Revolution, which will be appealing to many of you, I am sure. We'll be reading it in four installments and then having a uh, podcast episode in early August. Uh, and we will also be doing some some Patreon content about the very popular miniseries starring Richard Armitage, which I think many of you will have seen. It's excellent. So get on that. We will be tweeting out what we will be doing for next week when we decide what that is, which we have not yet. Um, it will you... be illustrious. It will be culturally enriching. While we're making that decision, you should go back and listen to our episode on Muriel's wedding from a couple of weeks ago, because I think we forgot to promote that. So do that and Carol, and then we will let you know what is coming up next. You can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. Uh, I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. We are on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.